Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another installment of our Insight into Teaching Intro Psych podcast. My name is AJ LaFerrera. I am on the marketing team at McGraw-Hill. And once again, I am joined by a pair of excellent instructors of introductory psychology. We'll turn it over to them to quickly introduce themselves. Greg, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Greg Feist, and I'm professor of psychology at San Jose State University in California. I am also the Psych 1 or Intro Psych coordinator for our department, uh, and my uh, training and background is in personality and creativity. Thanks, Greg. And many of you probably remember Greg from the Behavior and Biology podcast, and he's also a McGraw-Hill author. Igor? Thanks. Uh, My name is Igor Dolgov. I'm an associate professor of psychology at New Mexico State University. My specialties are in engineering psychology and human-computer interaction, and I do research in the areas of video games and drones. I've been teaching intro psych for about a decade now uh, in various formats, including face-to-face, hybrid, and online. Thank you guys both for joining us. I'm very excited for this installment of the podcast where we'll be covering the thinking, language, and intelligence area in the psych curriculum. And obviously, this is a vast amount of material, which we'll get to in a little bit. But before we do, I want to tackle what your guys' goals are for this chapter. What do you want students to take away after you've gone through the material in this area? Well, if I can start off, I just have to say at the outset that for me, this is in fact such rich material that both my book and then in the way I teach it, these are two separate chapters. And I find that very helpful to separate language and thought into one chapter and then intelligence. And then I add a smaller section on creativity in in the intelligence chapter. So I have to talk about them separately, thought and language and then intelligence and maybe even a little bit about creativity. But, you know, language is such a, an inherent part of being human that I really want to bring home and, and try to bring home how intuitive it is for us to learn language. And we kind of forget how easy it is, especially in contrast to, let's say, like reading and writing for instance, uh, which is not intuitive. And also how the earlier we learn a second language, for instance, the easier it is. And that often kind of challenges my students' ideas because they always think, oh, it would be better as an adult or even an adolescent to learn a second language. So that's always a fun starting point because it turns upside down some of their assumptions. And then with intelligence, the key idea is, first of all, what is it? How do we measure it and then where does it come from? In other words, the classic nature-nurture question. How much of it is genetic or biologically based and how much of it is learned? And I would agree with Greg. I think for me, these are two, uh, two related but separate topics as well. And um, the themes that he brought up, uh, I think, are the wonderful overriding themes that all students should walk away with when talking about this, those two topics. I think language and thinking is a great way or a great topic in which you can introduce really thinking about what separates people from the rest of the animal kingdom, which Greg referred to. And so there are a number of properties of language that make it so unique to our species that it really broadens the discussion of how we're different from the rest of the animal kingdom, which I think leads to a number of fruitful uh, discussions in class 
and really has students reflecting on what it, what it is to think. Um, you know, one of the more sort of overriding themes for me in this chapter is thinking possible without language, a question that most students haven't really um, asked themselves prior to taking intro psych. And, and in the intelligence chapter, in, in addition to sort of int introducing creativity, what I like to do is essentially connect the content there to uh, the personality psychology chapter because they're really both part of the individual differences and, and testing traditions. And so I really want students to walk away understanding that the majority of the tests they've taken in their life, uh, whether they're personality tests or aptitude tests or, or whatever standardized tests that they've taken in school, are all as a result of this line of thinking and trying to figure out what it is that makes them unique from populations. I think one of the one of the things that often gets lost in these chapters is that individual differences psychology has to establish population norms. So it's not really just about individuals, it's about understanding populations and then understanding individuals in the context of those populations. Yeah, and actually, uh, Igor, I like what you say about the question of how connected is language and thought. And I think most students assume, well, how can you think without language? And then I kind of try to point out to them, well, you know, there was about a two-year period in your life where you were pre-lingual. And, of course, evolutionarily speaking, you know, we probably, we definitely existed for, oh, probably millions of years before we had really complex grammatical language. So... Thinking is definitely possible. In fact, it's probably we thought before we had language. And then for my students, a lot of my population of students are, are bilingual. And so we really get into, well, if you do speak two languages, you understand that there's ideas and concepts that don't really translate very well to another language. So in a sense, you can separate concepts from language by understanding that you simply can't translate them all into one language. So anyway, yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea, and it kind of gets them thinking about the bigger picture of how language and thought are connected or not. And then I guess another thing I would like to say is, for me, the big question in intelligence is this one that I think Howard Gardner made. Of the two questions are, how intelligent are you? And that's one perspective, and that's the traditional perspective on intelligence that kind of looks at it as one general dimension. But the other question is, how are you intelligent? And that's a multiple intelligence perspective, meaning instead of intelligence being one thing, it's really many different things. And those are two not completely conflicting, but historically somewhat conflicting ideas. And then I think, I think that's just a simple and easy and engaging way to talk about it. How are you intelligent? versus how intelligent are you? I agree. I think almost all students in the classroom can, can relate to having talents in areas that haven't been measured by standardized tests. So I think, you know, with both of these topics, they're very easy to connect to students' lives because, you know, daily they are going through the processes that these chapters are talking about. And I think really sort of the middle ground between thinking in language and then the intelligence content is problem solving because problem solving involves a lot of creativity and insight and obviously some problems are, are couched in language terms and some are not, some are entirely spatial. So when we talk about different intelligence, intelligences, when we think about spatial cognition, that's a different way of thinking. And so I think that really uh, sort of connects the two topics in a way that 
allows for problem solving to be a bridge between these two major areas. I think in sort of in the overall context of how this fits into teaching an intro psych class, I really think it's wonderful uh, in a way to contrast these two things, which are in the tradition of individual differences psychology, then with, uh, with a lot of the other content, such as, you know, the stuff in memory and cognition and social psych, where we're really taking, uh, you know, big averages of massive groups and generalizing based on these numbers, whereas in, in thinking and language and intelligence and personality, we're really thinking about individual human beings and how their differences make them unique rather than the same as the rest of everybody else. Well, we've touched on this a little bit, but one of the things that you do or do not cover in a specific chapter, and I think this is a unique area because, you know, as you guys have already established, Greg, you teach this across two chapters. Are there things that you don't cover or, I guess, conversely in this situation, are there things that you include that maybe you don't have an opportunity to do so when you're trying to cram this into one chapter? I love the, the topic of savants. That, to me, is just an absolutely fascinating topic that touches on so many aspects of this. So I get into that more. And so then what that does is I probably spend a little bit less time on problem solving. Uh, I get into heuristics and cognitive processing and, you know, the classic Tversky Kahneman stuff and slow and fast processing and so on. But I don't really get too, too much into the actual problem solving, even though I do talk a lot about creativity. So that's, that's kind of my take, which is maybe a little unusual, but that's one of the things that kind of falls by the wayside a little bit. I think for me, it's, it's while I really love the topic of savants, uh, it's one of these things that I think isn't necessarily essential to covering this material. It's super cool. And I've got a, a lot of neat stories that um, make the material engaging to students. Some of them may have been exposed to Daniel Tammet. Of course, I've got some personal stories with exposure to savants. And I think it's something that is easy to grab onto for students and lets them engage with the material and chapter in a way that makes it more fun and interesting and gives it some sort of shock value in the sense that these folks are able to do feats of thinking or, or feats of perception, feats of memory, yet they aren't able to accomplish some of the most basic things in life like brushing your teeth. And, and that really just brings in the question of what is intelligence? How can you be so quote-unquote gifted and intelligent in one domain and so non-intelligent, for lack of a better word, uh, in other domains? So it really challenges the idea that, oh, well, you're either smart or you're not. Right. I like that topic quite a bit. I think for me, once we get to that area, I start talking to my students a lot about artificial intelligence because it's something that's, that's being thrown around a lot these days and you have a number of millionaires and billionaires coming to tell us that artificial intelligence is going to ruin our lives and take over the world. It's something that I have uh, a bit of a research experience in and so I, I always look at these uh, pr pronouncements of doom and sort of smile. When students really think about artificial intelligence, I think one of the most useful stories someone can tell is from a paper published in 1980 by a philosopher named John Searle. It's colloquially known as uh, Searle's Chinese Room. And I think students get, get a lot of the, out of this story as far as understanding what intelligence really is. And in a nutshell, Searle's Chinese Room is a room in which there's a human being who is given a number of Chinese character tiles and a rule book. Uh, the room has an opening on one side in which tiles can be passed, 
and an opening on the other side in which they can be uh, passed out of. And so to the average passerby, as long as the person in the room is doing a good job at using the rule book, the room appears to speak Chinese and appears to understand Chinese. However, as most students quickly realize, you know, the room doesn't understand Chinese and the person in the room doesn't understand Chinese. And so this really um, sprouts a discussion of what it is that needs to happen for computers to actually be artificially intelligent and to actually understand and have meaning to, to the concepts that are stored as syntax in their memory. So let me ask you guys both another question along a similar line. Where in the context of the intro psych curriculum does this fall? And then what are other instructors expecting students to know about this chapter coming out of intro? Well, I mean, for me, the context here is the overall rubric of cognition, of course. And cognition actually includes also a few other chapters like learning and memory. But clearly, intelligence, language, thinking, and even creativity, although creativity crosses the boundaries of cognition and personality. But yeah, kind of that's the larger rubric uh, is just these are kind of cognitive processes. So that's the context. For me, the big things to get out of intelligence is something that Greg already hit upon, is that we've got competing theories, some that state there's kind of a general factor and others that state there are multiple factors of intelligence, and there's a tension between them. Um, there are some compromises, like Sternberg's triadic theory, that have gone through some refinements, but really I think that's really the big thing is understanding that you know intelligence comes out of a tradition of individual differences measurement and that you know there's quite a bit of disagreement even amongst experts in this particular topic of whether intelligence is a multi-part construct or not. And I think it's something that, again, is engaging to the students. And if they walk out of my classroom understanding that single number like the IQ doesn't quite capture their abilities, I think that's a big win. Yeah, and then in terms of what other professors might expect, I mean, there's a few themes here that I think are critical that students really do need to come away from these two chapters knowing, first of all, how universal a language really is and and how intuitively it's learned by, by humans. I mean, I sometimes use the metaphor, it's kind of like birds in flight. We're just built for language, you know, and that kind of gets into the Chomsky's ideas of language acquisition devices and and I don't think they quite think of it that way either, but I think that's an important idea. Another one is how there are these critical or sensitivity periods for language acquisition, most easily seen in second language acquisition, because essentially all of us acquire a first language. But you see language acquisition becoming more difficult with age, and then especially accents. And that's always a fascinating thing for my students. And they're always kind of surprised to learn that, well, it's much better to learn a second language at, let's say, four and five than 15 or even 20. It's just easier. So I think that's an important theme. And then in terms of intelligence, we've kind of already touched on it, Igor just reiterated, you know, how it's measured, but how there's also these two distinct models of one thing versus many things. And then I guess lastly, I would say for me, getting into the creative genius and high intelligence and kind of disentangling those two ideas that you could be really, really smart and not necessarily be creative. So those are the big things uh, I would like to see. I agree. Okay. So let's take this into the classroom now and start talking about some practical applications that you guys use. When you are getting ready to start these chapters, 
are there certain things that you do to get class started or certain things that you post to the class to get them to start thinking? So for me, I think one of the neat ways to start um, the intelligence chapter is really bringing up phrenology. It is, it is cliche to do this in a, in a psychology class, but at the same time, uh, it's one of these fun activities where you can have people put hands on their own heads and start figuring out where there are bumps and et cetera. It's not something that they do regularly. And so I think thinking about this content in the same tradition, that phrenology is this totally hokey concept, yet it grew into this fully successful tradition of individual differences and personality psych and intelligence and measurement is, I think, really fascinating. One of the other things that I often tend to bring up around here, since I have a lot of former military folks as students, is that really the individual differences tradition was, was greatly helped by numerous conflicts and the Army having to figure out who was good at what job during the war theater. And so, in essence, um, one of these things that often gets glossed over in when this content is taught is the fact that, you know, we've been using this sort of testing to essentially maximize our warfighting capabilities since World War One. It's one of these things where grown into whole areas of psychology called industrial organizational psych, where we really try to figure out what are the optimal conditions in which these folks can perform their duties. And so for me, I, I often get into the issue of just asking questions and ask them for their questions. And that's always fascinating to see how they're thinking about it before we get into it. But then what I also then build upon um, is the, the bilingual aspect, since again, so many of my students are bilingual, and just ask them about, you know, when they may have learned their second language and then how difficult was it? And then also, do they think that it hinders or helps their thinking? Uh, I mean, there used to be some ideas that People who learn two languages early on would get confused and it would interfere with their thinking and problem solving. And now there's more and more research that we try to get into that actually being bilingual helps. There's actually some association between creativity and, and bilingualism and, and so on. So we, I try to get into those. And then another specific example I get into to kind of cross these topics actually is Einstein and how here was this guy who was in his early to mid-20s and just visualized himself riding on a light beam at the speed of light. And what would light do if it were to be projected from there? And that visualization was absolutely foundational, really, to his whole theory of relativity. And so visualizing, uh, and actually Einstein talked about this quite explicitly. He said he didn't think in language. He thought in images, in visual images and in mathematics. And that's kind of a good way to introduce the fact, again, that language and thinking don't have to be the same thing. And here we have this one of the most creative geniuses of all time saying he actually, his main ideas were not in thought, uh, in verbal thought, as I should say. Anyway, so those are the kind of topics I try to start off these chapters with to kind of ground them. I like that as well. I think about 50% of my students are bilingual as well. I'm, I'm also bilingualist and someone that learned a second language right before the critical period, so I've got no accent in English as far as I can tell. And so it's something that the students can easily relate to, and I think one of the exercises I have them go through 
is to find a concept in one of their languages that doesn't translate well or doesn't translate uh, at all into the other language. It's one of these things where it happens quite often, and to those students that only speak one language, they're often taken aback that, you know, there's something that bilingual students know in a different language that they can't grasp in theirs. Right. Um, and I think it's quite a fruitful discussion that, that comes out of that. And actually, that reminds me that this idea of how language influences thought mm -hmm. is critical there, and, and you know, the old idea that was initially kind of dismissed, but is actually making kind of a comeback. And that is the language that you speak used to be thought that it determined your thinking. And that was too strong of an argument. But it's quite clear now that the language you, you do speak influences your thinking and how you think about the world. And that's kind of a good thing to, to emphasize to students is that by thinking in one language, you're perceiving and thinking about things differently than if you use another language. So that is a fun thing to talk about, too. It is. That's the classic Warfian hypothesis that was proposed by an engineer, I believe. And so a lot of a lot of linguists got very upset about this. But we are indeed realizing that the language you speak colors the way you think, which right. is which is really neat. For for some of my students, um, we've got a fairly significant local deaf population. And so a lot of my students have exposure to sign language as well. And so I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this. And I think one of my favorite stories to open up the language chapter is about Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan sign language. And so after a period of civil war in, in Nicaragua, there were no schools for the deaf. So a lot of these uh, kids that were especially living in rural communities had no access to schools whatsoever. And so at some point, the government began a busing program where they were busing a lot of these kids to a centralized location where they were trying to teach them things like lip reading uh, in Spanish specifically. But what turned out was that the kids essentially invented their own sign language, particularly because of the long bus, bus rides and their time on the playground. And when um, linguists came out to study it, they found that it was essentially a, a pigeon form of language. And then when the next generation of linguists came out, uh, they, they found that this language all of a sudden now had grammar and had been essentially advanced by the next generation of kids. And so this goes back to kind of like birds and flying. Humans can't help but to develop language even when they're deaf, even when they're in isolation, even when no one's teaching them. They come up with something that resembles modern languages fairly quickly. It's pretty amazing. And that uh, reminds me that one thing important that I try to point out is that even though cultures vary in their overall complexity in terms of technology and so on, although a little bit less so now, languages are essentially equally complex. Cultures that we might think of as developed have actually, if anything, more complex or as complex of languages. I mean, like, for instance, a lot of West African languages have three or four times as many phonemes or sounds made, but their grammar is just as complex as any other language. So that's an interesting thing, that, that even though we differ culturally in complexity, we don't differ in linguistic complexity. Very interesting. So we spent a little bit of time talking about the thinking and language. What about in the other areas of these two chapters, so problem solving and creativity. And intelligence for that matter, I guess. I mean, I for intelligence, I often like to also throw at them some problems, some classic IQ problems, both verbal and nonverbal. So the Raven's progressive matrices problems. 
And I start off with some pretty simple ones, and I, I even project them up on the screen and give them 10, 15, 20 seconds to solve it. And then I have go out with my pointer into the crowd or the students, and one of them who says they have it show us what the solution is. But then I give them a pretty complex Ravens problem, which is pattern recognition and nonverbal. And it really stumps them. And it, I give them two, three, four minutes, and maybe 1% of the class solves it. And then we go through, pick one of the ones who actually does have it, and I say, well, okay, well, why? And they have to spell out the rules because you could have gotten it by chance. And it's interesting to just see how the lights come on when they start seeing, oh, that's how it works. Okay. And then also the same thing with the nine dot problem, the classic that you have to connect all nine dots with four straight lines without picking up your pen. Very few of them solve that problem. And then when we finally show them, someone comes up with a solution. And again, it's this classic aha moment. I agree. Like I mentioned before, I like to start with phrenology when, when we're introducing intelligence. Um, when we're talking about creativity, it's, I, I tend to stick to the personality side when jumping into the topic, and I have them name some of the most creative artists and musicians, and then I have them describe their personalities, and it, it often starts a discussion of, of eccentricities and a number of other things that turns into a discussion of traits of these folks, which is a great lead into the rest of the content. Actually, if I can just say, I guess one other example I really get into, in fact, I have about a 10-minute film clip on a pretty well-known case of Jeannie Finn, that's, you know, who was found at age 13 wandering the streets of Los Angeles. And as it turns out, she was severely, severely abused and, and neglected by her mentally disturbed father. And at 13, couldn't really speak. And of course, she became a big case in science and it tragic on many different levels, but they're just fascinated by that case to, you know, both the tragedy of it, but also just the issues that come up. And so, again, I think those personal cases like Jeannie or Einstein or trying to solve problems, those kind of case studies are always a good hook uh, for students. I agree. I think Jeannie's probably the most compelling story almost in the entire semester. And I think one of the things that brings it home these days is that there have been children sort of like Jeannie, uh, multiples of them now, in the Ukraine and Russia due to, the, due to rampant uh, alcoholism that's going on in those countries. So are there any other either examples or stories or really anything that you guys want to share that you use to engage your classrooms? So one of my favorite examples, which has to do with savants, comes from an episode in, in, in my life. So for those of you that are aware uh, of the movie Rain Man, uh, there was a, a savant played by Dustin Hoffman. And the, the character is based on a number of savants, primarily a man named Kim Peek. But um, they actually used, I think, up to six different savants to essentially model the character in the movie. And, and one of those people was employed at the library where I went to college. And so I once went into an elevator and ran into this man who immediately asked me what my favorite baseball team was, and I quickly answered the Yankees. And he asked me whether I wanted to know the score on any particular day, and I said, sure, how about August 14th, 1984? And he proceeded to tell me the score of the game, and then he proceeded to tell me the lineups and exactly how many hits everyone got and exactly how many, how many strikes the pitcher threw. And any given statistic I wanted to know about the game, he was able to provide. 
And so for the rest of my uh, time in college, I would show up at the library just to interact with this guy and essentially probe his various knowledge banks. Uh, he had eidetic memory, which means that, and so I could easily come up to him with a book and ask him what was on page 184 in the third paragraph, and he could tell me. And so it was this, you know, neat personal gateway to a true genius who was stuck working in a library. It was kind of amazing. I'm always blown away by this, but how does the brain work? I mean, if we could really understand how someone can do that, we could really understand a lot about thought in general. What's fascinating, though, is that you always only find this kind of ability in people who have some kind of other, usually left hemisphere language deficit. So there almost always has to be some kind of deficit. So you can't help but wonder if by having one deficit in one area, your brain can kind of compensate and make up for and have these incredible either memory or calculation or recall or fact. That's what's fascinating about that to me. It's a good way to bring it back to neuroscience. You know, we, we're right. in this chapter where we're, at, you know, essentially way down the line from neuroscience for most folks in terms of teaching it during the semester. And then you can go back to anatomical differences, uh, you know, in the brain and really what is creating these savants and geniuses. Um, you know, Daniel Pammett is, a, is, a, is an amazing example because he's a savant and yet he's, he's entirely functional as far as we can tell. And so it seems like that is also a great jumping up point for a discussion of, you know, what is the next step in human evolution? Are we going to have more humans that are fully functional savants or is this something that is really just kind of going to be a blip on the radar? every so often. Yeah. And actually, though, Daniel Tammet was interesting in two ways. He had an epileptic seizure, apparently at age four, that from then on is when he started having these incredible calculational abilities. But also, he was a synesthete. So Daniel Tammet would see days as colors, but more importantly, he would see numbers as both shape and color. One of his feats was recalling pi out to 22,500 digits. And he wasn't, when he was doing this, he wasn't seeing numbers in his mind. He was seeing shapes and colors. And he did that without a mistake. I mean, that's just unlearnable. I mean, you can't teach this. And, and that's another thing that's interesting. We always think that abilities are learned. Well, there are some abilities that people just, it seems to be almost unlearned. They just have this ability or they don't. And it's something about the, yeah, the makeup of the brain. Uh, and I think that's a classic example of how neuroscience fits into thinking. You know, we've shared a lot of examples. Thank you both for that. Um, before we wrap up, though, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to share some parting thoughts. Do one of you want to kick us off? I think my parting thought is that a lot of the content in, in these chapters is something that really hits home for a lot of students. So they've taken a lot of standardized tests, and they, you know, they took the SATs to get into college. And so people have been measuring their intelligence for a very long time. Uh, most of my students aren't fond of those tests, and so getting them to understand why they exist and the fact that they are in place to potentially catch students that are falling through the cracks and employ interventions such that people can succeed. That's you know one of the ways that instructors can really make this knowledge really hit home. And in terms of thinking in language, I think in almost every classroom in the United States, uh, taking advantage of the fact that many of the students are bilingual is one of the great strengths of teaching this content. Uh, it's a good jumping off point for a number of discussions, including we mentioned whether thought needs to include language and whether concepts can be represented in some languages that aren't in others, and really what are the differences amongst cultures that are language-based or entirely not language-based. 
all of these things are, are something that students can easily sink their teeth into, and that really makes this content quite engaging. And yeah, building on of what Igor just said, one of the things that we haven't actually talked too much about, but the testing is, is inherently interesting to people because most students have, at best, a love-hate relationship with cognitive testing and aptitude testing, and, and especially for those who may not have done terribly well on the SAT or whatever, uh, they always think, oh, it's not a good test and so on. And we talk about that and that, in fact, they're the most reliable test in social science in terms of reliability. Their reliability is most often above 0.9. So they're incredibly reliable and consistent. But of course, the real question that people are interested in is the validity. Do they validly assess? And the reality is, is that, that they do predict academic performance. And so we, I tell them, well, that's why they're used. But you can't try to generalize outside of academic performance to other things. Their validity at best is limited to academic domains. And, and even then, of course, uh, the traditional IQ tests that measure just, you know, spatial, quantitative, and verbal skills are not going to assess other things that the multiple intelligences test, you know, like, let's say, musical talent or bodily kinesthetic ability. So that's where we get into the validity. And I think once they see that, that there's a, a different way of looking at intelligence more broadly, they can, kind of appreciate that, aha, it's not just about IQ. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think, an important parting uh, point that I try to make, that it's intelligence really is many different things, for instance, and, at least on that topic. That's an excellent point to, to part with. Great. Well, Igor, Greg, thank you both for joining us. Everybody out there that's listening to the podcast, thank you for spending some time with us, and we will talk to you guys again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.